things. One, I took too long. Two, I didn't finish what I wanted to say. There are two main things I wanted to bring up, and, and I, I hopefully we talked about one of those, that um, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So as far as righteousness is concerned, as far as being in the family of God and the blessing of God is concerned, um, we are there, anyone who trusts him is there, because Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses, right? He is the fulfillment of that. And we enter into this position as sons of God. We are given the right to be called sons of God um, when we trust Him, when we believe Him. That God sent His Son to die on the cross for our rebellion, for our sin, that He was buried and raised from the dead. That's the great news, that Jesus came to save failures, (laughs) sinners. (laughs) So... Uh, we'll, we'll sum it up, re- hopefully sum that idea up again real quickly, kind of reflecting on a couple of things that I talked about last week. And then we'll move to the second part of uh, what I want to talk about. Well, what do we do then with the law? <laughs> what do we do with, with Moses then? Right? If Jesus fulfilled Moses, um, then what now? Right? So um, we'll talk about that a little bit today, at least look at some examples from the New Testament. Matthew 5, I ought to find it. If you're, for future reference, uh, as far as today goes, if you want to also grab 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, and uh, let's see what else, Luke uh, 18, we'll go there. I'll tell you like four others at some point, but um, you can have a finger there as well. Matthew 5, let's read through it and then we'll pray. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain and went... He, Jesus, was seated. His disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, When they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned or made salty again? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do they they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but instead on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't think that I came to, to destroy the law or the prophets. See, I didn't come to destroy, but to 
fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, there will by no, excuse me, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it's been said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Not really a certificate most people would want, I suppose. I don't know, maybe sometimes. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your uh, tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, don't turn away. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. 
Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You see, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you, if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. <clears throat> well, Father, the only way for us to be like you is for you to make us that way it's true that with men this is impossible in our own strength Lord in our own uh, working out apart from your help we are incapable of making ourselves as you are and so we rest in, we rejoice in this glory of the new covenant, that Jesus paid it all, and that you said your will, your law, you would write in our hearts and in our minds, that we would know you. You've shared with us yourself by giving us your spirit. You've removed our sin from <coughs> us by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. And it's from this position of, of peace, this position of having been reconciled to you, brought into this relationship as your children, knowing you as Father. It's from this position that we get to think about and serve, that we get to care about each other because we know you care for us. And we get to share with each other because we know that everything we have is what you've shared with us. That we get, we get to share with, with others. We get to love our enemies just as Jesus commanded. We get to turn the other cheek. We get to be free from vengeance and anger and lust. Because you work in us to do that. Because it's what you want, it's what pleases you. So my Father, would you continue that work in us, I pray. Because none of us have reached that place yet <laughs> where, where we are uh, perfect. But we know that when we see Jesus, we will be like him. In the meantime, Lord, would you continue to change us, I pray. Please do it for the sake of our families, for the sake of our friends and our city. For uh, the sake of for you, of the sake of your church, Lord, not not just this fellowship, but the ones that that we get to share with all the time, Lord, our brothers and sisters who meet in other places, Lord, we ask you to to bless them and help us to share. Please do it in Jesus' name, Amen.
Amen. Amen. All right, guys, I asked you to look at, uh, to grab, if you want to, to grab Luke 18. I want to read a little bit of a passage there because uh, in our recap of what we talked about last week, of Jesus' fulfillment of, of the law and the prophets, Jesus' fulfillment of Moses, and how he said in Matthew 5 there that not one jot or tittle would pass from the law until it was all fulfilled. Uh, the reality is it all has been fulfilled uh, in Jesus. Okay, He is the fulfillment. And uh, a reminder, I suppose, of that idea is that when Jesus, after the resurrection, <laughs> Jesus is seen walking on the road with two disciples. You may remember the story. These guys are on their way to Emmaus, right? Walk to Emmaus, if you've been a part of any of that stuff, right? Uh, Jesus was... Um, uh, walking with them, but they didn't recognize him. See, after the resurrection, he was able to conceal his identity uh, at times, and then um, all of a sudden, they sit down with him at, at the um, this fire, and they he breaks bread, and as soon as he breaks the bread, they recognize him, and then he vanishes. <laughs> they recognize who he is, and then he just disappears. He's gone. It's this amazing thing that Jesus seems to have the ability to do in his resurrected body, is just appear. Just um, In fact, that's one of the appearances to the disciples was when they were in a locked room, the door was locked, and they were hiding there because they were afraid that they too might face the fate that Jesus had faced. And uh, so they were just chilling out there, and there had been reports of the resurrection amongst some of them, but all of a sudden Jesus, boom, just shows up right in the middle of the, of the group. <laughs> it's fascinating, yes. <laughs> and they were terrified, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so, it's a reasonable response to that. But anyhow, uh, look with me really quickly at Luke um, chapter 18, if you would. Um, in um, verse 9 is what I wanted to look at. Okay, so, uh, verse 9, Jesus says this of Luke 18. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, I'm, I'm sure that, that we've never known anyone who was like that. In fact, I'm sure that we've never been like that before. Looking at other people and thinking that we are better than them because we haven't done the stuff they've done. Right? Trusted in themselves that they are righteous and then despised others because of their rebellion. I'm sure we've never done that before. Ha ha. Ha ha. Ha. Not really funny. Um, <laughs> so Jesus is saying this here in Luke 18, and he continues and he says this in verse 10 of Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple. This is what he said to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood at the temple, and he prayed thus with himself. This is how he prayed with himself. That's one thing you probably should try not to do. Don't pray with yourself. Pray to the Lord. <laughs> but anyways, he prayed with himself. And he said this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector, and I feel him like pointing his finger like down at this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. Look at all the good things I do. I give tithes of everything I possess, right? One-tenth of everything that I own. And the tax collector standing afar off, he wouldn't even come close to the temple. He would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. He wouldn't even look up to the heavens. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is this um, inverse law of the kingdom of heaven where Jesus tells us to, and he goes back to this regularly, he says, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, make yourself the servant of all. This inverse positioning is what Jesus brings us to over and over and over again, teaching us that the place of greatness in the kingdom of the heavens is the place at the bottom, is the place of service, is the place of being concerned with others, of esteeming others better than yourself, which is something we're commanded to do by the Apostle Paul later, esteem others as better than yourself, right? And Jesus used that uh, story there of the tax collector and the Pharisee to contrast these two positions, right? And he used this story specifically, right? The beginning of that that I read there in Luke 18 verse 9 said, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. This is something that cultural Christianity breeds. It lives in this idea that um, we are righteous, not because of the sacrifice of Jesus, even though we say we trust in or love Jesus, but we are righteous because of what we have stayed away from and because of the good things that we've done. Therefore, we are righteous and we are better than other men. Hey, that's not the gospel. (laughs) And Jesus spoke this parable specifically to combat that idea. Now, one of the things that we came back, uh, came to last week, this is our sort of the summary really quickly of uh, what we talked about last week, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Um, I want to read to you a little bit here from, uh, in in summary, read to you a little bit here from um, from Hebrews. eight. Um, in summary, we, and we talked about it quite a bit. So Paul mentions this idea in the book of Romans. He talks about it in Galatians in several places. Um, the summary of it is this, maybe what we find in Ephesians chapter two. And it is this, it's a commonly remembered verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Okay? It is by grace. It is the gift of God that you have been rescued from your sin. 
And it's something you've entered into by believing him, by trusting. That's what faith is. It's laying your trust in someone, something. That's what it means to have faith in it. Faith is only as good as not your sincerity, right? Lots of people have very sincere faith in very false things. Faith is only as good is is only as good as the thing in which it is placed, right? Some people have great confidence, great trust in their, I think of young children, have great confidence or trust in their parents and your continued ability to provide for them and take care of them. But that trust has been, even though it's sincere, especially in little children, to know that their parents will make sure they have food and take care of them, that trust has been betrayed over and over and over again by parents who've abused or parents who've even murdered their own children. I can't imagine the type of fear a child would have because they've placed themselves wholeheartedly, trustedly, they have faith in their in their parents. <clears throat> but <clears throat> it is by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. What's the gift of God? Well, your salvation, the grace is a gift of God. That's what the word grace means. It means gift. Okay. <clears throat> uh, some argue that faith is also a gift of God. I don't think there's much argument there. <laughs> Everything we have comes from God. And and I'm okay with that. Um, but the contrast is that it's not of works if any of us are in a position where we are saying like the Pharisee did that we are better than other men because we're not adulterers extortioners, whatever if that's our attitude about ourselves and we look down on everyone else then I'm afraid you may not have actually embraced the gospel you see that's the reality and that's a very strong thing for me to say but I, I fully believe it is true if you believe that you are right with God because of your obedience because you have done good things and stayed away from bad things whatever you've defined those things as then you are not resting in the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf and that is itself a failure to embrace the good news in fact, it's for people like that that the law was given. To magnify our sin. To make sin sinnier. <laughs> I have the microphone. I can make words up. <laughs> okay. to, right. to make sin worse. That is why the law was given, right? Because as we go through the scriptures, we find even before the law was given, we talked about this last week, Abraham was justified by faith when he believed God. And Paul brings this up. In uh, Romans, Abraham was justified by faith. And this is way before the law was ever given. It says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It wasn't because of any good works of, on Abraham's um, part. In fact, Abraham still had a hard time believing the promise of God and tried to make it happen on his own, right? As he, he took uh, his, his handmaid, uh, Hagar, you know. You know, and tried to make the promise of God happen. And God's like, even later on, God said, listen, in a year, Sarah's going to have a baby. Abraham's like, listen, we've got Ishmael. Just bless Ishmael. And God just says, no. no. The son, and, and Paul brings this up as a great illustration of this very point, that those who believe they are saved by their works are like Ishmael. They're outside of the promises of God. It's the work of the flesh to think that you can make yourself good enough to be in God's kingdom. 
but that's the definition of religious systems. And it's even the definition of, quite frankly, cultural American Christianity is do some good things, stay away from certain bad things, go to church on Sundays, give some money to the church, and as long as you keep doing that stuff and stay away from the real bad stuff, you know, like murder and, and rape and you know, real bad stuff that like bad people do and stuff, then you're fine. And so there is a plethora, there are, is, is a plethora, it's a group, one group, plethora is a plethora yeah. of people, uh, even peers, even family members of ours, who have not embraced the great news of Jesus, that aren't resting in him, because they're still trying to work at it. They're still trying to make, him, make themselves the children of God by their obedience. And this is why what we ended with last week was I was um, reminding us of what Jesus said in Matthew 11 when Jesus said, Come to me, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. But we live in the midst of a people, even a people who call themselves followers of Jesus, who know no rest, who know no, <laughs> K-N-O-W, <laughs> N-O, rest. <laughs> who know no rest. So I say to you, examine yourselves, whether, whether you are in the kingdom, right? Test yourself. Examine yourself. Jesus' warning is stern, and I think that ours ought to be as well. <laughs> it's hard to, to come up, it's hard to get a person to realize they may not, especially a person who's gone to church for 20 years, for them to realize that maybe they've never actually believed and rested in Jesus. Though they use his name. And Jesus is going to say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, many will come to me in that day and they will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things for you? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. That's going to be a shocking reality for many. And I say to you, don't let it be you. <laughs> That's all I can do. Don't let it be you. Examine yourselves whether or not you are in the faith, whether or not you have rested in this, that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, He was buried, and He was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures, alive now, died for your sins, alive now, rescuing those who come to Him. Trusting. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's why we can't have the attitude like the Pharisee who goes and stands at the temple and he's like, God, I thank you that I'm not like all of these wicked people. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? And yet sometimes deep down inside we can feel that way, can't we? When we read news stories, right? Sometimes we can have that same kind of Pharisaical attitude, right? When we read news stories of terrible things that people do. Instead, we ought to be like the tax collector who just couldn't even look to heaven, just beat himself in the chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because even though those people are sinners, so am I. So am I. And I need a Savior. And He is that. He is the Savior of the world. That is the great, the wonderful, wonderful promise that we have is that He gives life to those who are dead. 
that he rescues sinners, that he justifies the ungodly. <laughs> These are the great promises of the gospel. <coughs> this is why it's good news for a world that's in rebellion. But if Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and this is sort of how we began last week, if Jesus fulfills the law of Moses for us, um, this is sort of where we, as I mentioned, where we began last week was with this idea. People can come to us and they can say, listen, you say you're a Christian or you follow the Bible or whatever. Well, the Bible says that you shouldn't wear clothing with mixed fibers. And the Bible says that, you know, you should stone people caught in the act of adultery or that you should stone homosexuals or that you should do uh, not eat shellfish, right? Or not eat pork, right? And they go through the law of Moses and they roll off on all of these things. And they say, well, why don't you do that stuff? Right? You say you follow the Bible. Why don't you do that stuff? Yeah. Well, the simplest answer is because Jesus fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law. And he demonstrated to us that at the heart of the law was the reality of love. It's in loving others that the law is fulfilled. And Jesus is the embodiment of the love of God. That's why even when the woman who was caught in the act of adultery brought, was brought before him, he could say to her, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. That's the kind of acceptance that Jesus offers. Not, neither do I condemn you. Keep doing whatever you want. <laughs> because he still says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Deny yourself. People come to me and they say, well, I'm this person. I'm this kind of person. This is how I define myself. And I say, fine. Now hear the words of Jesus. If you would be in his kingdom, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. The whole world out there is telling us, be who you are. Accept yourself. Whatever you want is what you are. You define your reality. And the voice of the king of the heavens says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. <clears throat> Something that, by the way, <laughs> uh, pretty sure most psychologists would warn us against. <laughs> we would be conflicted. We would be, well, yeah, we are conflicted. But so is the rest of the world. <laughs> And then trying to say that we are something that we're not, and you should be okay with that, and whatever. Just more evidence of the internal human conflict that defines human reality. We're all conflicted people. With men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. But that's the, the framework with which I define things, is in the framework that God created everything. And they cre he created us for his own glory, for himself, for his own pleasure, because he wanted to make us. <clears throat> Those who haven't trusted him certainly don't begin with that kind of framework, right? <laughs> they say, you exist by chance. There's no meaning to anything except that meaning which you define to everything. And that's real scary. Because then how can you say that anything is wrong? That's the meaning that somebody gives to it, and their life should be about getting whatever they want, even if it means hurting others. Who are you to say otherwise? Everything's by chance anyways. 
how can you even think rationally? I mean, all we're talking about is electrical shocks to a weird piece of goo in your head. What is rational thought anyways? Why do thoughts make sense? What is logic? Why is it even there? <laughs> Everything's just random. Listen, come on, guys. <laughs> anyways, um, I digress. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8 says this. <clears throat> For if that first covenant, the one made with Moses at Mount Sinai, with the nation of Israel and Moses at Mount Sinai, if that first covenant had been faultless, this is Hebrews 8, verse 7, then no place would have been sought for a second covenant. But finding fault with them, with Israel, who didn't obey the law, excuse me, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. By the way, this is a quote from Jeremiah 31. <clears throat> Behold, the days are coming says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant, a covenant is a contract or an agreement, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Jehovah says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. What a glorious promise God gives to Israel. In, uh, through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. He says that because you broke the old contract we had at Mount Sinai, the days are coming when I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Not like that old one. That old covenant was, if you do these things, you live. But the new covenant, God says, your sins and your lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Imagine the creator God of the universe infinite in everything, in wisdom and knowledge, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, knowing all things, for him to say, I will not call to mind your sin any longer. Right? I will remember your sins no more. Think about the people who have sinned against you. Think about how easy it is for you to call to mind the hurt that you have faced. When the person's name is mentioned. When a certain circumstance happens again. In those moments, you have the opportunity to forgive them again, and you should. Seventy times seven. Don't keep a ledger. <laughs> and I don't mean for another hurt. I mean even for the, the original one. <clears throat> The God of the universe says, Your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. That is remarkable. That is glorious. That is good news for me. Because he sees me as his child now. And he, he is our Father. The last part of that Hebrews uh, 8 passage says this. Uh, after he quotes the Jeremiah 31 promise. Oh, by the way, in case we weren't clear about when this new covenant begins... Jesus, after Passover with his, with his boys, with the disciples, he takes the final remaining cup there, and he divides it among them, and he takes the bread and divides it among them, and he says, this is my body, and this is my blood of the new covenant. 
What's he talking about? He's talking about the prophecy that Jeremiah gave of the new covenant that he would make, entered into by his blood spilled on Calvary, spilled on the, the cross of Calvary. Okay, so the last part of Hebrews 8 says this in verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, so the fact that God says he's going to make a new covenant, this is what it means. He has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And the book of Hebrews is much is written to Jews, um, <laughs> primarily written to Jews, to encourage them to come out from underneath Judaism, even as followers of Jesus, to come out from underneath that. And it would be soon after this that the temple itself would be destroyed. So eventually they would, they would lose the ability to offer any of the sacrifices that were required in the law of Moses. They would lose the ability to do much of the requirements of Moses. Okay, So this was an encouragement to them to show them that Jesus was better than Moses. Jesus is greater than the priesthood of Aaron. Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is greater than all of the things that they had looked at. They were all shadows pointing to a greater reality, and the greater reality was the Messiah. And the Messiah has come, right? That's what uh, the book of Hebrews is about mostly. So we take that back to this application of Jesus saying, not one jot or tittle would pass from the law until it's all fulfilled. And then the author to the Hebrews is saying to us, what, what the fact that God says it's a new covenant... What he's saying is the old one is, is obsolete. It's powerless. And so what's becoming obsolete is ready to vanish away. So we go back to that Romans 10 passage that we read last week. The Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. <laughs> for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. How many, how many different ways can we say this? <laughs> And that, not of yourselves. It's not of work, so that no one can boast. Right? So, um, <clears throat> what do we do then with the law? What do we do then with Moses? What do we do then with uh, the prophets? Well, among other things, um, the author to the Hebrews reminds us there in the beginning of the book of Hebrews that it was uh, God who in different ways in various times spoke to the fathers by the prophets. He has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Okay, so God indeed spoke through the, the law. He spoke through the prophets. I want to look at a couple of examples of this, um, how this plays out throughout the New Testament. There are several places where um, Paul references the scriptures or he references the writings. Now you need to understand when you're reading through the New Testament and in one of Paul's letters, Paul's like, the writings say this. You know what writings he's talking about. He's talking about the Hebrew Old Testament. He's talking about the law and the prophets. That was the Bible of the early church. <laughs> okay? They were in the process of collecting the, the letters as they had been written, but their primary text was the law and the prophets because they knew that God had spoken through Moses. They believed that God had spoken through the prophets. Paul says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He says, uh, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other teachings, no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. This is the commandment of Jesus, love from a pure heart. Um, 
from a good conscience and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the Torah, teachers of the law, he says, of the Torah, of Moses, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. They have no idea what they're talking about, some of these teachers, Paul says to Timothy. But we know, now he's going to talk to us about the law, he's going to talk to Tim about the law, we know that the, the law, the Torah, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully or correctly, right? Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. The law isn't for people who have entered into uh, salvation by grace through faith. It's not made for a person who is righteous in that sense. But he's going to say very directly, the, um, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, right? Insubordinate means not willing to, uh, to be under submission. <laughs> insubordinate, rejecting authority, right? The law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing, any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine or good teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. The law is important. In fact, Paul says the law is good as long as you use it the right way. <laughs> okay? It's not to be a list of rules to tell people how they can become righteous. But instead, the Torah, the law, as you go through it, what you find is that we are failures to make ourselves righteous. And the law points it out by revealing to us the heart of God about many, many, many issues. You see, it's from the Torah that Paul was able to say, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers because God had forbidden Israel from marrying, marrying those outside of Israel, okay? From marrying foreigners. That commandment in the law of Moses is fulfilled. The heart of that commandment is not that white people shouldn't marry black people, even though it was taught that way for some time. That's not the heart of the commandment. The heart of the commandment is don't be unequally yoked together with those who don't believe God. Right? That's the heart of the commandment. And how we walk in love is by realizing that that's what God wants. That's what he cares about. When Jesus was asked about uh, divorce or challenged about divorce by the Pharisees, uh, Jesus responds, I believe it's in Mark 10, uh, at least one um, one um, of the writings of it is in Mark chapter 10. Jesus responds, and he responds by going to where? To tell us what God wants. By going to the Torah. <laughs> by going to the law. He goes back to Genesis, in fact. The first book of the law. And he says, in the beginning, God made them male and female. In the beginning of creation. And he joined them together. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. 
But because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses gave you this caveat, this precept of writing a certificate of divorce. Certainly Jesus recognizes that marriage can be hard. In fact, Moses even gives the reality that there is something that can so damage the marriage relationship that sometimes the response then is divorce. As heartbreaking as it is. And that's sexual immorality. Right? We'll get to that part of the Sermon on the Mount eventually, but um, <clears throat> in a couple weeks here. <laughs> the divorce, that particular part. So we'll talk at length about that stuff. But anyhow... Um, Jesus goes back to who? Back to Torah, back to Moses. Now, I'm going to wrap up our teaching this morning <laughs> with this. Listen, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast, right? We've settled on that reality. It's, it's not by the keeping of the works of the law that any man will be justified. Because the person who does them, who does all of them, shall live by them. And you and I have failed to do all of Moses, all of the law. The Jews had sort of codified it by saying there were 613 <laughs> specific commands in the law that had to be kept. And then they had page after page after page in the Talmud and the Mishnah, the, the writings of the rabbis to then clarify how you keep the law of Moses. And I talked to you a little bit about this before. Some of the, the things about how to keep the law of Moses were like this. Like, in order to avoid working on the Sabbath day, you can't spit on the ground because your spittle might roll in the dirt and create mud. And making mud is a job, so you'd be working on the Sabbath day if you spit on the ground. So you can't do that. And if you've ever spit on the ground on the Sabbath day, Saturday, you've broken the law of Moses. That's how the rabbis uh, would define these things. They would say that if you carried a burden on the Sabbath day, you were breaking the law. And Jesus just would rebuke them right to their face all the time about that one. He'd go in and he would look at people that were sick, right? That were like laying on their bed and couldn't walk. And he'd be like, get up and take up your bed and leave, right? He did it on purpose. He purposely offended the traditions of the rabbis. Do you understand that? Because they said, you can't carry a burden on the Sabbath day. So Jesus goes in on the Sabbath day, and he says, hey, rise up and walk and take up your bed and go. I think he enjoyed it. So I, I think that he was demonstrating a point that, that, that he, first of all, what they were doing was creating traditions that kept people away from God. <coughs> in fact, when you read Matthew 23, when we get there, we're going to hear Jesus speak some of the harshest language. Sometimes people are like, Jesus is just so mild and meek and he's just so sweet. Yeah, to pretty much everybody except the religious leaders who thought themselves holy and everyone else wicked because of their traditions. And they were keeping other people away from God, away from knowing God. Um, this is the idea that I wanted to end with today. So, so we're not justified by the keeping of the law. So... Um, any person, whether Jew or Gentile, who has been justified, has entered into the kingdom of God, has, been, has done so by trusting in the Messiah, Jesus, not by the works of the law. Okay. Jesus fulfilled the law. And by the way, those phrases, as a reminder, jot and tittle, a jot is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The, the Hebrew letter is yod. 
uh, jot is just a transliteration of the Greek, which is what the New Testament's written in, which is uh, iota, is the smallest letter in Greek. Yod is the Hebrew letter. Um, and a tittle is, uh, is a small marking on the end of a letter. Uh, it's something used in Hebrew that can sometimes change one letter to another letter. Um, and can be, therefore change the entire word with this little tiny uh, little uh, line, if you would, or, or slant at the end or at certain parts of, of letters. Uh, if you've ever looked at Hebrew, you'll notice, in fact, you can probably look at, um, to not to call her out, but Trina's back, she has a tattoo right there in Hebrew. You can see the little things on the end of it, uh, on the end of the letters. Um, anyway, so not one jot or tittle. Well, in in um, Think of computer fonts in our lingo. We have serifs. You might have some fonts that are sans serif. That means they don't have serifs on the font. And the serif is just the little tiny inflections on some of the end of the letters. That's what we're talking about. That's the idea. Something as small as that. <coughs> Jesus said, would not pass from the law till it was all fulfilled. Okay? <coughs> so, uh, anyhow. <clears throat> we're saved by grace through faith not of works, so that no one can boast. If we find ourselves in that kind of position where we are saying we're better than others because we do this or don't do whatever, and all these other wicked people need to get their act together, then I think that we need to repent, and we need to come back to the gospel and realize that um, there is anger in our hearts that condemns us. There is lust in our hearts that condemns us, and jealousy and envies and murders and all of those things that are inside of us that we need to be rescued from as well. And Jesus is in the process of doing that. Um, in us by his Holy Spirit whom it's given to us. Um, so then what do we do with the law? We recognize that the law is spiritual, that God spoke through Moses and he spoke through the prophets. That's what we do with it. We, we come back to it. Paul's going to use the law in several other ways. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, he uses the law in a particular way. Um, before I get to the 2 Corinthians part, let me just read this. Um, when he's talking about... Um, him getting a paycheck, talking about Paul getting a paycheck, essentially. He says this, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm, if I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this, do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's um, the Aramaic name for Peter, is uh, Cephas. Um, Simon Peter is who Cephas is, Cephas. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen uh, God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. See, if we've sown spiritual things for you, is, is it a great... Uh, thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? You know, It's this interesting usage of the law of Moses where he's saying, here's this illustration from the law of Moses where God says in the law, don't muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Well, certainly that's a good thing to do for your ox, right? Your ox is sitting there working for you. Take the muzzle off of him so he can eat some of the stuff on the ground while he's working, right? 
It just is reasonable and a good way to treat your animal. And then he asks this pointed question. Is it only oxen God is concerned about? If God says to do that for oxen, then like, what about others, right? What about people? And he says that it's written for our sakes, that kind of example. Later on in the same, uh, the same letter there, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, Moreover, brethren, 1 Corinthians 10, 1, Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all ate the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was the Messiah. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. <laughs> it makes you think of a metal song. Sorry. <laughs> now, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lust, lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt the Messiah as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them com uh, also complained. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Listen, the law and the prophets have a lot of benefit for us. Because it's in, this is where we're going to wrap up. Second Corinthians. It's in the writings that something very wonderful happens for you and I who have trusted Jesus. And Paul talks about it in his second letter to the Corinthian believers. Keep in mind a couple things about the Corinthian letters. 1 Corinthians is actually not the first letter Paul wrote to Corinth. There was one before that. We just don't have it. And then uh, 2 Corinthians, there probably was one in between there. But we don't have that one either. Um, which is fine. Because um, there's a reason why we don't have them. But we can talk about that another time if you'd like. Um, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says this. This is where we're going to end. Yay. Do we begin again, chapter 3, verse 1, do we begin again to commend ourselves, Paul says? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are a letter of the Messiah. You are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as servants of the new covenant. That's what a minister is. Sometimes we use the word minister to speak of, like, the leader of the church. Fine. But Jesus really is the leader of the church, right? The word minister just means servant. You're servant. So am I serving people? Are you serving people? Are you a minister of the gospel? I hope so. I hope you will be. Um, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, like the letter of Moses, 
but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law of Moses just kills. It just condemns everyone to judgment because we've all failed. The blessings and cursings that God had Israel pronounce on Mount Ebal and on Gerizim, right? God said, blessed are you if you obey. Blessed, 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 blessed. Cursed, 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 cursed. All these cursings will come upon you when you disobey. Right? And of course, it's what ended up happening. Exactly as God said. For if the ministry of death, continuing in 2 Corinthians 3, if the ministry or the service of death written and engraved on stones, please listen to what Paul is saying, please. What was written on stones? What was it that was written on stones? First of all, maybe you're thinking of the two stone tablets, right? Written with the finger of God that had the Ten Commandments on them. Maybe so. But listen, Moses commanded Israel to write all the words of the law on the whitewashed stones that they left at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. When we read through that there in the end of Deuteronomy, they wrote all of the law on stones. Okay? If the ministry of death written on and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Let's make sure we understand what's being said here. Paul is saying that the ministry of death, the law that was written on stone tablets, and specifically in reference to like the law, the, uh, the Ten Commandment tablets, if you would. When Moses came down from the mountain, it says that his face was shining out the glory of God. And he's going to mention this. But Moses put a veil over his face to cover the glory. And Mo- Paul's going to say this, but he actually put the veil over his face. He, well, we just read it. Because that glory was passing away. His face would be like shining out this glory after he went up on the mountain. It would be literally shining. So he wore this veil over his face. But it would start to fade away over time. And you know what he'd do? He'd have to go back up on the mountain and sort of recharge his face glow. Right? (laughs) And then he would come back down. But if he put a veil over his face, you know what? Nobody would know that the the glow was going away. (laughs) Nobody would know that it was fading away because his face was covered with with this covering. Right? I know when we hear the word veil immediately in our minds because of our um, context, we think of like wedding veil, this white, thin little thing, right? But maybe we could think more along the lines of, uh, think of like an Islamic veil that women wear over their bodies and their faces, something that's solid, you can't see through it at all. They have like the eye holes in it or whatever, maybe. Maybe something like that instead, right? Um, Because the idea is that you can't see. You can't see its face is the idea. Uh, also think about that when you think of like the veil in between the holy place and the most holy place in the temple. This was like a giant, thick curtain. This was not just some thin little, teensy little veil. This was a giant, thick, enormous curtain. It, it took, I, I don't remember how many, a uh, bunch. I think over 50 people to actually hold this thing up and hang it in the temple. It was enormous. It was inches thick, inches thick, this veil in the temple to separate the holy place from the most holy place. In the temple. That's the veil, by the way, that was torn in half when Jesus died on the cross, from top to bottom. No, just special. <laughs> that's awesome, because that's where the law was. That's where the presence of God was. The ark there, who, the ark which held the law, which kept the law, and it was covered by what? 
by the mercy seat, the lid. And the, oh man, this, these are all pictures, they're all illustrations of, of real, of spiritual truth, of the heavenly realm, you guys. So it's so wonderful about why we don't throw out the law and the prophets, because it helps us to understand who God is and what he's done. And I believe something very special happens that's even more than that, something spiritual that happens when we find ourselves going through the scriptures and writings. And Paul's going to say that here. I told you we were ending with this, so let's go ahead and end with it. And you said we were ending, Jason. I know. <laughs> How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious if the, if the law and the giving of the law created caused Moses to have this glory shining from his face that eventually faded away. Why would the ministry of the Spirit, which is far greater than the ministry of death of the law, how would it not also be glorious? Paul says. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. That old glory, man, that's no glory compared to this glory, the glory of the giving of the Spirit of God to all those who trust Him. That old glory is not even, can't even be compared to it, he says. For if what was passing away, or what is passing away was glorious, the law of Moses, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, this is where we're summarizing it, therefore, since we have such hope of this greater glory than the giving of the law of Moses, the glory given to us by the Spirit of God, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech unlike Moses. Wait a minute. I thought Moses was pretty bold, right? And Paul's saying we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, and he says why? So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. He covered his face so they couldn't see that the, the glory was leaving. That's why he put the veil over his face. But their minds were blinded the Jews who didn't believe. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Paul actually uses the word Old Testament here. This is, by the way, the reason why we call the Hebrew writings the Old Testament. This is why we call the, the Tanakh the Old Testament. Um, their minds were blind, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in the Messiah. This is why Jews who haven't trusted Jesus can read through the Law and the Prophets, and they cannot see all the ways that they point to Jesus, the way that maybe you and I can. Because they have a veil over their eyes that's preventing them from being able to see it. And that veil is taken away in the Messiah when they trust Him. The veil is removed. And they begin to see Jesus in the writings. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Paul says, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is one of the things I love to come back to. And you've got to understand, what's the context of what he's talking about? He's talking about the reading of the Old Testament. He's talking about Moses. So he's saying that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom from what? 
the commands of the law of Moses. For the Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness. Do you understand this? This is really important for us to get. Because people are going to come along, they're going to come into our group and into other groups, and you'll hear them, and they'll say, well, matter of fact, I had a guy come in one time into our church in Brunswick, and he stood up in the middle of a service and started going off on something, and, and, and essentially his idea was that if you believe the gospel, you're really a Jewish person, and therefore you're bound to keep the law of Moses in, in its entirety. This is what he wanted to teach people. And I tried to reason with him over and over and over again at least five different occasions. I spent an hour, two hours, talking to this gentleman in his 70s who sometimes forgot to bring his teeth with him. (laughs) I only say that to mention that it was very uncomfortable because I was about 23 at the time, 24. A small group of believers gathering with us. Yeah. Um... The Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. Jesus had said to the disciples, I will come to you. I will not leave you orphans. Wait a minute, who came to the disciples? The Holy Spirit. Wait, the Lord is the Spirit. (laughs) The Master is the Spirit. That's why the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. Now, please don't misunderstand me. This is has something to do with the incomprehensible unity of the Trinity. Because God exists as Father, as Son, and as Spirit. Three persons. But there is only one God. One God. Equal. They are equal. Jesus is fully God, just as the Father is fully God. He's not part of God. This is where all of our illustrations of the Trinity break down. Where we use things like an egg, and we talk about the, the yolk and the white and the shell and all of that. Those are parts of the egg, but, but that's God, all that God is, Jesus is. All that God is, the Father is. All that God is, the Spirit is. The reason why we have no illustrations to perfectly demonstrate that is because nothing else is like God. He is holy. Alone God. The only other things that exist are things that this God created. The last part here of 2 Corinthians Three is a great promise for us. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But here's the last part for you and I who have trusted the great news of Jesus. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory, that is from lesser glory to greater glory, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I hope that and, and I hope that you get the summary. We all with unveiled face are beholding, just like looking in a mirror, we're looking at the glory of God, we're looking at Jesus. What's the context of what he's talking about? The reading of the scriptures, the reading of the Old Testament, the reading of the law and the prophets, going through the word of God, 
the writings because the author of the Hebrews says God in various times in different ways spoke to the fathers by the prophets but he has in these last days spoken to us by his son so as we go through the scriptures something miraculous happens we are being changed from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us so I cannot encourage you more my dear brothers and sisters read your Bible That's all I wanted to say. Well, you took a long time. <laughs> Father, I'm so thankful for the incredible grace you've given us. We haven't deserved to be in your kingdom, and yet you've loved us, and you've brought us into it for your own sake, for your glory, so that for all of the ages to come, the angels will look at what you have done, and they will say, isn't God gracious? Look, he rescued Jason, that rebellious, wicked boy. He rescued him. And so for all of us, Lord, we will be trophies of your grace, of your kindness towards sinners. And in the meantime, as long as we're alive here until you complete the work you've begun in us through the transition of the grave, I pray, Father, that you would change us to make us more and more reflective of your image, just like looking in a mirror, we would become more and more reflective of your character, God. More full of love, kinder, more gentle, Lord, more patient, freed from envy and wrath and jealousy and bitterness and all of those things that are of our flesh, Lord. But we need your help to do it, and, and, and I, I really believe that something happens when we spend time in your word. You, you reveal to us and you work in us by your spirit. So, Father, would you make us people of your word, I pray. Would you please do that work in us, from glory to glory, by the Holy Spirit whom you've given to us. That work that I can't do, and we can't do for ourselves, but you can. Will you please do it in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. 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 Thank